We are right now, this morning, finishing up a summer study that we have done on the life of David. And one of the things that to me is really cool is David in so many ways is like us. I mean, there's good points, there's bad points, there's up, there's down. And today we want to talk about the idea of finishing well. It was William Culbertson, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he was one of the really well-known presidents of Moody Bible Institute. And he said this, it is important to start right, but it is imperative to finish well. And one of the really interesting pieces about David is that with all the ups and downs, all the, you know, we've looked at a lot of the mistakes, he finished well. And when I was thinking about this, my mind went back uh, because, again, a little, you know, been around a little bit. But for those of you that were there, do you remember the 68 Olympics in Mexico? And, well, in fact, why don't you turn your attention to the screen? Tell you the story. At the 1968 Mexico City Marathon, three men earned the right to stand on the victory platform, the winners of the gold, silver, and bronze Olympic medals. But for some, the reward is a personal one, the knowledge that they finished what they set out to do. A little over an hour after the winner of the marathon crossed the finish line, John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania approaches the stadium the last man to complete the journey. A voice calls from within to go on, and so he goes on. that lifts sport out of the category of grown men playing at games. A performance that gives meaning to the word courage. Perhaps the words of John Stephen Aquari epitomize all that is right in the human spirit. When asked why he did not quit, he said simply, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Pretty cool, huh? They didn't send me to start it. They sent me to finish it. And when you think about how what we are called to do uh, and how we are called into this journey with Christ, it's not about how we start. It's about how we finish. So you got your Bibles. We're in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 29. We're going to get there, so turn there. We'll get there in a minute. But I wanted to start with just a reminder to us that we are called as believers to finish well. You know, one of the great pictures that we have in the New Testament is this idea of the Christian life being a race, a marathon. 
of running the race and completing it well. I'm sure as you think about that, your mind probably runs to that scripture in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is a journey. It begins the moment we accept Christ. And it does not end till that day when we stand before him. And it is a marathon. It is a journey. It's, it's this process. And, and when you think about it, it's not the, the simple running you know, in a really smooth piece. It, it's, it's the idea of a cross country, of going the hills and the valley. That's why Paul said to the believers at Ephesus, to the elders there, however, I consider my life nothing to me if only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul said, listen, that's all this is about. This is about finishing the task. And what's interesting, he gets to the end of his life and he comes back to the same picture. He said, listen, I'm already being poured out. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. The journey, the marathon. And again, when you think about a marathon, a cross-country race, it's not run in the, you know, the confines, the comfort of a track. It's out on the street. There's the obstacles. There's the hills. There's the valleys. There's the other runners that can sometimes trip you up. And that's the way it is. When we run this race, we know that there's the ups and the downs. There's the difficult times. There's the good times. There's, There's the others around us that sometimes trip us up and we fall down. But the question is, do we get back up? The, the question is that when we get tired in the midst, and, and do we stop or do we press on, finish well? In fact, not only do we have the ups and downs of the valleys and the hills, but we've also got an, an enemy, right? An enemy is trying to trip us up, trying to get us sidetracked, trying to get us off course. You know, when I was in high school, I loved reading mythology, some great stories there. And the story was told of Antalanta. And, and uh, she was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman. But she was very fast. And so her, her courtship routine was this. If you race me and you beat me, I will marry you. But if I beat you, I kill you right? Simple rules, right? Courtships didn't last very long. And men smitten with their beauty would come and they would run and she would, she would beat them over and over and over till one man, Hipponymus, comes and he chooses to race her, but he took with him three golden apples because like any other woman, she kind of liked her bling, And as they were running the race and she would get too far out, he would take one of those golden apples and he would roll it and it would catch her attention and she would stop and she would go chasing after it. And he won the race. 
And you think about how the enemy along the lines as we're running the race will we'll take those passions. We talked about it with David. God's made us as people with passion. But the temptation comes to follow the passion outside of God's plan. And we sometimes get sidetracked and we sometimes turn to the left or to the right. And the question is, will we get back on path? Will we finish well? Because this is a race of endurance. This is not, this is not a, a, a sprint. This isn't a 100-yard dash or a 40-meter dash or even a 440. This, this is about endurance. This is about going on and finishing the test of time. So when I was a young man, there was, a, there was an old country preacher. Uh, his name was Vance Havner. Any of you hear Vance Havner? You know, he was kind of a pastor to pastors. He used to preach a lot at Moody, do their pastors conferences. He'd do Founders Week. But he had one message that spoke. In fact, I still listen to it at least once a year. I've heard this thing a hundred times. I play it for, for young guys in ministry. Because the message is entitled, The Four Tests of a Preacher. The first test is truth. Do you know it? Do you stand on it? Second one is, is to test a trial. What do you do when hard times come? The third test is test a temptation. How do you deal with the temptations that come in ministry? But the fourth test is the test of time. Do you finish well? Anybody can start out quickly. How do you finish? You know, the hare always gets off to the start, but I've read the book like a hundred times. The, the tortoise is the one that always wins. How do you do this? Do, do you live Isaiah out? Yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles in youth. They will run and not get tired in middle age, and they will walk and not become weary in old age. Do you finish well? It is a race of endurance. Are we finishing well? And I would remind you, the reward is not to the swift. The reward is not to those that, this isn't about outrunning the person next to you or measuring yourself to somebody else. It is about being faithful, doing what God has called you to do. That's why Paul says, listen, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, press on. You know, that's the thing about David. David had many failures. There was Bathsheba. There was the counting of the people. There was, there was the failures with his children. There was the failure with his wife. But, the, you know, and, and we talked about how, you know, you deal with that, but you can't go fix yesterday. You have today. And can I remind you that the victories of yesterday, the victory with Goliath was good yesterday, but it doesn't help you today. In the same way, the failure of Bathsheba was a terrible failure, but it doesn't have to cloud today. And in your life and in my life, the importance that we press on, that we, we move forward. You think about David's life. David had lots of ups and downs. I mean, there's, there's lots of success. I mean, at the very heart of that, we've talked about this a lot, David had a heart for the Lord, right? It was the first thing that we read about David. It's when Samuel was talking to Saul that God has chosen for himself a, a man after his own heart. That's David's heart. 
David had a heart for God. We're going to see in this passage in 1 Chronicles that even to his dying days, this heart to honor the Lord. Secondly, he, he was a man of great faith. He's willing to go take on Goliath. He's one that we read in the Psalms that when Saul is chasing him and trying to kill him, he had great faith to trust in God. In the midst of the battle, when he's running from Absalom, he had great faith to, to, to be able to depend upon the Lord. He was a man of great faith. Not only that, he was a great warrior. Man, a, a great military leader. He expanded the borders of Israel farther than they're ever going to be. But as we've seen in the midst of all the the success, there's the failure. He's a, he's a failure as a husband. You know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. Well, you know, when you get that many, you can't cleave to them, right? He's not a good father. He's, he's distant. Amnon rapes his sister. David does nothing. Absalom kills Amnon. And now there's distance, and, and he never reaches back out to Absalom. Abinadab finally is beginning to try to take over the throne when, when God has said it was going to be Solomon and David does nothing. He, he, he's a failure there. He fails with Bathsheba. You I mean, not only in the fact of committing adultery, but committing adultery with the wife of one of your closest friends, somebody who's, who's put their life on the line for you over and over again. And that lust led to, to adultery, and adultery then led to deception, and deception led to murder. And it was a huge failure in his life. And then we didn't even get the chance to talk about the failure late in his life when he, he went and he numbered the people. You know what's interesting? When God was setting Israel up, before they even had a king, he just gave some wisdom to the king. The number one, the king was supposed to read the law of God. In fact, write it. Write it all out themselves. They were not to accumulate for themselves lots of horses. David, David failed there. He did. They weren't supposed to accumulate a lot of wives. He, he did. The other thing they weren't supposed to do is they weren't supposed to number the people. Why? Well, because if you number the people in God's blessing, all of a sudden you, you're probably tempted to put your confidence in how big your army is instead of the God you got, right? This is a big thing with God. It's about trust. Are you going to trust me or are you going to trust your own resource? In fact, do you remember the story in Judges when, when Gideon is going to take on the Midianites? There's 132,000 Midianites and Gideon raises an army of 32,000. You do the math. There's four of them for every one of you. And what does God tell them? You got too many. So they do the first test and 22,000 go home. So it's now 132,000 against 10. 10,000. God says, if you win with 10,000, you're still going to look at yourself. What a great military guy. You got too many. He got him down to 300 people. I don't even know what the odds of that one was. 300 against 132,000. Now God says, you won't trust in yourself. You'll trust in me. Let me give you the victory. Don't number the people. David numbered the people. Failure. But here's the beauty of this. This is what I want you to get. In so many ways, David's life story is like ours, isn't it? There are those points of success. There's a, those points of ministry and, and success where we follow after the Lord and we turn for him and we, we know his leading in our life and we see God at work. But then there's those moments of failure. 
those moments where we cross lines where we know we really shouldn't and we, we don't act correctly. We, we've chased the golden apple off the path. But the reality is, is that the God, though he knows about yesterday, his concern is for today. Our God is a God of redemption. And just like with David, now through Bathsheba is going to come Solomon. Our God redeems even brokenness in our life. And are we going to follow after him? And he's given us that, that opportunity. And that opportunity is today you follow after Jesus. Today you walk with him. Do you remember Jesus' words to his disciples? You know, and this is so good because it wasn't to the crowds. It was to his disciples, to those that believed in him. He said this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Folk, yesterday's victory is not good enough for today. Yesterday's failure shouldn't cloud today. Today, I can't go back and fix that, but today I can walk with the Lord. Today I can take up my cross. Today I can follow Jesus. Today I can finish well. In fact, you think about that thread that we've had through all of this, that simple path that God has put together of dealing with yesterday. It's called repentance. It means we agree with God that we did blow it. You know, when Nathan came to David and says, you're the man, David owned it. And can I tell you, until you're willing to own your sin, first of all, before God, and secondly, before others, you're never going to know how to go on and finish well. You've got to own it. David owned it. I've sinned. I have fallen short before God. He confesses it to God. Then you reconcile as best you can with the Lord and, and those others who have been hurt. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody's sin and you forgive them. But then today you walk in obedience. Today you choose to follow after the Lord. Today you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Now here's the takeaways. They're so good. Let's read. We're in 1 Chronicles 28. Let's read the first 13 verses together. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribe, the commanders of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of the hundreds, the overseers of all the property, livestock belonging to the king and his sons with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. Then King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, so I had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. So now in the sight of all of Israel, the assembly of the Lord, in the hearing of God, 
Observe and seek all the commandments of the Lord your God so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its building, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, the rooms it has for a mercy seat, and the plans of all that he had in mind for the course of the house of the Lord, for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God, the storehouses for the dedicated things, and for all the divisions of the priests and the Levites, for the work of the service of the house of the Lord, for all the utensils of the service of the house of the Lord. David, David finishes well. A couple things here. Number one, in the midst of the ups, the downs, the failures, the successes, underneath it all, David had a heart for the Lord. You know, you see that. David says, listen, in the midst of all this, what I was wanting to do was to build a house for God. God said, you can't build it, David. You're a man of war. Your son will build it, but you can prepare for it. And so for all these years, I've been preparing. I've accumulated the gold. I've accumulated the silver. We've got the craftsmen ready. Solomon, you're going to do this. But in the midst of all that was going on, Bathsheba counting the people, all of this, David's heart was a heart for the Lord. That's why when Nathan comes and confronts him, David doesn't get mad. David doesn't have Nathan put to death. David repents. When David numbered the people, and again, God calls him out. He repents. There's a heart for the Lord here. And here's the thing, folks. We're going to have ups and downs. You know, this idea that the Christian life is this steady thing, you know, it's just not how it works. The truth is there's going to be better times. There's going to be those times. It's, it's that thing. But all the while, we are to be moving to become more and more like Christ. It's the journey of sanctification. It's what the Holy Spirit does. And in that, again, what you've got to be reminded of is you can't fix yesterday, but there is a path forward, and you can finish well. And what we see David doing here, I mean, one of his big failures is he's been absent as a father, right? Well, what David does here is he bestows vision and purpose and the sense of value and approval and leadership upon his son. You know, I find this interesting. In a lot of ways, this maybe even speaks to us as fathers more. But I really think it speaks to all of us because all of us need to be investing. All of us, whether it's our own kids or our grandkids or people that we're discipling. Man, there are four things here. First of all, he bestows upon them a vision. Solomon, a vision. You're going to build this temple. That's what God has raised you up to do. You're gifted to do this. This, this vision of, of, of what you can be, that you can be something that God can really use in a mighty way. One of the greatest things that you and I can hand off to our kids is this sense of vision. That God wants to use them, that God wants to do great things with them. And he sits Solomon down in front of them all and he paints this vision. In fact, this vision is so great, he's even got plans. You can almost see him pulling out the blueprints and say, come on, Solomon, this is what I'm thinking. But you know what? You can even make this better. That sense of purpose in their life. You know, so often as dads, 
you, you know, we, we want our, our sons especially to kind of be like little us. And, and we have those dreams. And I think in my own life where, you know, my dad and I, we always bounded around sports. We both loved sports and, and especially baseball. My dad was a, was a pitcher, had tryout for, for pro team. I mean, and so even as a little kid, we go out and play with the wiffle ball. And then as I got older, uh, in the spring, summer, fall, pretty much every night after dinner, we'd go out, we'd at least play catch, or we'd shag fly balls, or hit ground balls, or whatever. Baseball was that thing. We used to get games together. We bounded around baseball. So when I started having little boys, I thought, baseball, that's going to be it, right? It's going to be cool. It's going to be like me and my dad. And so when my, I think for both of them, because I had hope for both of them, one of the big mistakes, and you know, if you made this mistake, it's okay. It's not about yesterday. You know, just repent and you can fix it, all right? But one of the biggest mistakes people make with baseball with their kids is they get them, you know, when you go into a store to buy a little mitt glove for a little kid and they're these little plastic cheapy things and nobody could catch anything with it and then they get discouraged. They don't want it. A real baseball mitt for anybody who knows this, I mean, it's a leather glove and you form it just right over the baseball and you do that by getting a baseball and putting it in there and sleeping it under, uh, on top of it under your mattress and, you know, oiling it up just right. And, and so when my sons turned three at Christmas, I got them leather gloves and I, I, I spent time weeks before getting it just right and got them the glove and I was so excited and I got them outside and tried to throw the baseball with them and you would have thought I took them to the dentist neither one of them like baseball so the question becomes do I force them into something that I like or do I see their strengths and help them find their purpose you know one of the things I found one of the biggest pieces of leadership that the good leaders do is they help people get on the right seat on the bus. They help them play to their strengths. That whole idea of Prado principle that, you know, 20% of what we do brings 80% of the bang because God has uniquely gifted us. You see, David was a man of war. He's a warrior. That's who he was. Solomon's a man of peace, but he's a builder. And David spoke into him that sense of purpose you can do this. God has gifted you to do this. You're not like me, and that's good. And approval. Solomon, you're up to the task. I've had this plan. I've had this vision. But guess what? You're going to take these things. You're going to even improve upon them because that's who God has made you to do. You know, I work with a lot of men through the years, uh, a lot of men's groups, a lot of discipleship groups. And I can tell you, men are typically non-emotional. If you want to get a man to cry, good luck. But your best shot will be ask him about his relationship with his father. Doesn't guarantee it. But if you want to see emotion. For some, there will be tears. And the tears will be tears of sadness in the sense that they had such a great relationship with their dad. And maybe their dad is gone or they... You know, because of miles, they don't close. But man, it's, it's tears of joy. It's tears of appreciation. But more often what you will get is you will get the emotion of anger. 
disappointment, frustration. In fact, if we were to take an Oprah moment in here and begin to have you all tell stories this morning, there are probably a lot of you here that to this day you're frustrated because you could not get the approval of your parents, your dad especially. And one of the greatest things, Dad, that you can pass to your kids is approval. That you, you're proud of who they are. That you love them for who they are. And they're not just like you. And that's a good thing. And many of you grew up with parents that came out of a generation where that never happened. David set Solomon down in front of everybody. And he lays his hands on him and says, Solomon, you can do this. You can do this better than I can do this. That's why God had me wait. You're not a man of war, but you're a man of peace, and that's even better. It's approval. And lastly, this idea of leadership. You know, David does something that's really unique here. No other king in Israel has ever recorded doing it, um, except one who, who got sick. <laughs> but David installs Solomon as king while David's still alive. Interesting. I remember growing, uh, when I was a young man, just in ministry, I was with one of my mentors, and he was going through this, his parents were getting older, and he, he said to me, Steve, one of the hardest transitions in life is when the parents have to become the kids, and the kids have to become parents, and it's hard on both sides. He says, that's what I'm going through with my mom right now. You know, she just, she needs more help, and I'm trying to get, but she has a hard time doing that. And then I watched my parents walk through it with my grandparents, and I see now, even as we're getting and they're getting older, and those, tra- and those are tough transitions. How cool is it that David is willing to say, Solomon, you can handle this. You, you need to sit on the throne now. I need, to, I need to step to the side. He finishes well. He purposely engages with Solomon. I'm out of time, so I'm going to talk really quick. But did you notice verse 9? As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. Verse 20, then David said to his son, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God. My God is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Man, you know, David had been absent. He had been away, but now... He speaks. Now he speaks in. He finishes well. Some of you, as you look back, man, you weren't the dad you should have been. You weren't the parent. You weren't the husband. You weren't the spouse. You weren't the neighbor. You know, again, there's a path for that. You, you repent of that. You confess that. You try to reconcile. And you go back and you start asking people's forgiveness. And it's, but you say, but Steve, but they, yeah, they had a place in it, but that's not up to you. What's up to you is where you fail. Go and apologize. Start speaking into their life. Finish well. You can't go undo yesterday, but you can do right today. David purposely engages with Solomon. He also prays for his son. If you skipped over to to, uh, chapter 29 here, and you begin to read David's prayer for his son, it's, it's a beautiful prayer. Um, we pick it up, let's see here, uh, in verse, uh, um, let me pick it up, 18. He says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people. Direct their heart to you and give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, and to do them and to build the temple 
for which I have made provision. You know, one of the most important things you can do to finish well is you can pray. You pray for your kids. You pray for your grandkids. You pray for those that you're mentoring. You pray for those that God has brought in your life. You, you, you adopt those people into your life and you pray for them. One of the most precious times that Tammy and I have together, we like to walk each night. And a part of that is that we get to pray for our kids. We get to pray for our grandkids. We get to pray for our parents. We, we just That's the most important thing you can do for them. And lastly, he just, he finishes well. He dies with his affairs in order. You see that there in chapter 29, verse 28. Then he died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches and honor, and his son Solomon reigned in his place. David... David just didn't leave stuff in chaos. You know, even though he, he had let things go, now he deals with Abinajab. He, he, he stands up and he says, no, Solomon's the one. And he speaks and he engages in these last days, these last weeks, at best his last months of his life. He finishes well. His affairs are in order. Everybody wants to, everybody knows what the plan is. So, you all know my dad. He's a, he's a guy that wants to finish well. So two years ago, it was about right now, we had gotten back from Colorado, and he's not feeling really good. It's about six weeks before he's actually diagnosed with leukemia. But one night I was over there, and he says, Steve, uh, you know, I need to see you. Now, I've got to be honest with you. All those old feelings, you know, when you're a little kid, because whenever I got, I need to see you, uh, I was in trouble, all right? And all those feelings came rushing back. And I'm thinking, well, wait, wait, our relationship's different now, so it was good. But, yeah, I need to see you, so we need to go out for lunch. And with my dad, if you go to lunch with him, you're going to one of three places. You're going to Manuel's for Mexican. You're going to Barrow's for pizza. You're going to Freddy's for a hamburger. We were at Freddy's. And we're sitting down. We're making small talk. And finally he said, well, listen, I want to talk to you. He says, I don't know what it is, but something's going on in my body. He says, I think we're coming to the end, and I just want to make sure you know. Now, by the way, this was like the 20th time he had done this with me, all right? <laughs> Not in thinking something was wrong, but just wanting to make sure. He wanted to, he wants to know. He, he wanted to remind me, Steve, this is what I want done. This is what I want to happen. This is what I'm counting you on. He wants to finish well. Folk, we can't go back and change yesterday but we can finish well today. Walk with Jesus. Take up your cross today. Invest in your kids. Invest in your grandkids. Set vision and approval and all of those things. Pray for them. Finish well.